We Saved You a Seat is sponsored by the Oklahoma Family Network. Oklahoma Family Network focuses on supporting families of children and youth with special health care needs and disabilities, as well as families who have children with a mental health or behavioral health diagnosis. Oklahoma Family Network provides families with emotional support, resource navigation, parent-to-parent engagement opportunities, and wants to ensure quality health care for all children and families by building strong and effective family professional partnerships. Welcome to the month of May and Mental Health Awareness Month. This week is Maternal Mental Health Awareness Week, and today I'm incredibly happy to have James Craig on our podcast. James works for the Oklahoma State Department of Health in the Maternal Child Health Division. James co-leads the Maternal Mood Disorder Workgroup for our state and truly has the desire to ensure Oklahoma families have resources and easily accessible supports in this area of family health. We will release two podcast conversations with James, and in today's episode, or part one, we discuss some very specific types of postpartum mood disorders and how to find the very specific resources tied to maternal mental health. I'm excited for you to hear from James today and join us in our conversation to bring perinatal mental health awareness to the forefront. Was this something you really wanted to do, was target this maternal mental health field? Technically, my actual title is Maternal Child Health Social Work Coordinator slash Safe Sleep Coordinator. So uh, maternal mood disorders, uh, perinatal mood and anxiety disorders, that's not even in the title. Um, That is a piece of what I do for sure. And it's a vital piece, but it's one piece of, you know, the four or five hats I wear. It's definitely something I've gotten more passionate about as the longer I've been here because I've, I have grown to be uh, more of the key point person for that uh, at the state level. You know, therefore I've, I've gotten to know more about it. And I've, I've interviewed, you know, 12, 13 women uh, who directly have told me their stories and you can't hear those stories and not feel uh, a certain level of passion about wanting to prevent as many of those, you know, you would say uh, harder stories or more difficult uh, stories and roads that some of these women have had to walk through. You can't not, you can't help but not want to help that number be reduced. You, you, you definitely, the more you know about it, the more you want to make sure that fewer folks have to walk that path. Because it can be really tough, um, especially with, you know, we have at the national level more and more resources every year. That is the good news. But at the local level, we don't have nearly the resources that I would like to have. The longer I've been in the role, the more I've been interested and passionate about being an advocate. I thought I might start out by talking about May being Mental Health Awareness Month. And specifically, we have a maternal mental health week in the state or I guess in the world. Yeah, absolutely right. And then even in, um, we have a world mental or I guess a world maternal mental health day. And so as a mom who, uh, who has experienced maternal mental health, obviously with the babies I've delivered, um, I know there's been a lot of terms that are used and there's like the PMADS, which is the perinatal mood and anxiety disorder. Then there's the, the PPD, which is the postpartum depression. 
and then an MMD, which is maternal mood disorder. And James, I know you work with maternal child health, so I'm, I'm hoping you can kind of clarify what some of these are, what some of these um, mean, and, and maybe just kind of tell us a little bit about what you do for maternal child health at the Oklahoma State Department of Health. So thanks, James. Yes, that's right. So maternal and child health is really family health when you boil it down. And in fact, the division that we're in, the division I'm in, excuse me, maternal and child health sits in, within the family health services uh, of uh, the Oklahoma State Department of Health. So that's really what we're about is, is helping strengthen families. And when you talk about maternal mental health, broadly, I think most people think of uh, postpartum depression. That is, you know, specifically, I think the number one um, disorder that folks are aware of, but it is very much, and it is also the most prevalent, you know, just by the numbers, it can vary state by state. As some, in some states, as, as high as one in five, and in other states, we're, we're looking at closer to um, one in uh, uh, seven, but nationally, it's about one in 15 for uh, folks, primarily women, when I say this number, that's, that's usually who we survey, uh, but it's not solely women. Uh, women are the ones that obviously in the uh, perinatal period that we're often gonna look to, but it's, it's not just them. And, and I should clarify the word perinatal because I get asked that too. So perinatal refers to the period uh, before, during and after birth. And so, this could be uh, when we're in our prenatal time, getting ready to have a baby. Uh, this could be during the pregnancy. This could be after the pregnancy for uh, really up to a full year. And in the most cases, that's kind of what we're looking at is, um, you know, sometimes it can be a year before, during, and a year after that whole chunk of time. So when you think back to 10, more, certainly 20 years ago, I think almost everyone could tell you um, that they have heard of postpartum depression, but that's it. You know, really any other mental health concerns that fell under the umbrella that we're talking about today. Uh, and again, that umbrella is perinatal mood and anxiety disorders. That's the umbrella term. And that term is fairly new. I mean, really it's only in the last three to five years, I would say at the most, where that's more broadly used. Um, but way back again, 20 plus years ago, that would not have been a term that people had heard of. Uh, and even today, a lot of folks I think are not aware of it, but we like to use that term now because um, when, you, when you say postpartum depression, um, it's, it's limiting. That is something that is very common. Uh, that's the most complication, most common complication of childbirth, by the way, um, but it is by no means the only one. So that's an array of disorders that fall under that umbrella uh, that also include postpartum anxiety. So that's probably the second most common. Um, and in fact, the majority of the women I've spoken with um, tell me that it's, it's almost always a combination of the two. Rarely, I think, do I find someone who says to me, I really only have the postpartum depression. I didn't have any symptoms of, of anxiety at all. It's very commonly, it's both. It's just a, a, you know, what what percentage of each do you sort of find yourself struggling with? But that also does include some others. You know, the probably next down off the line would be uh, postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder, postpartum OCD, um, and then, you know, we also have some others in there. 
uh, birth trauma really would would pervade a lot of these. Uh, it's not a diagnosis in and of itself, but that experience can be a, a contributing factor to a lot of these uh, concerns. Even though I've already said that postpartum depression is the most common complication in pregnancy, um, baby blues is even more common. It's, you know, if we're talking about postpartum depression, looking at numbers of, you know, 15% or even higher, because again, this is, this is what's reported, right? So we know that this is the number of folks will admit to, which means you can probably tack another 5% onto that number, uh, at least more than likely. So if that's super common, uh, baby blues is even more so. So what's baby blues? So baby blues is even more common. This is like 70% of mothers, very, very, very common. And this basically is, I, I just had a baby. My hormones are all over the place. Um, I'm overwhelmed. I've got a giant amount of thoughts racing through my mind about, you know, uh, do I have another child at home? Do I have another three children at home? How am I going to care for this baby? How am I going to sleep? Where's, you know, how's my partner going to help or not? Do I have a partner? Um, oh my gosh, what about childcare? What about uh, meals for the next six months to a year? You know, it's so overwhelming. And so all these feelings and, and thoughts are, are overwhelming and you're going to have insomnia, you're going to have irritability, um, you're going to have increase in mood swings, less energy, crying potentially for, for no reason that you can, you can identify, uh, or for all the reasons I just said, frankly, can make someone want to cry. And so very, very common. Most women go through this, right? So um, one of the things that I want to really underline is probably the least, not probably, it is the least common uh, of these umbrella uh, would be postpartum psychosis. And I want to definitely say it's a real thing. Um, we do have indications where we've, we have women who experience auditory or visual hallucinations. Um, they're not clear on where reality starts and ends, but it's extremely rare. It is 0.1% of the population. So why am I under, underlining that? Primarily, I want to underline that because there, I think there's a big misperception about what postpartum depression is and what it, what it actually looks like in real life. And it very frequently, unfortunately, is conflated with postpartum psychosis. Um, there have been several movies where you'll see a woman who um, may think that her children are possessed and um, does things to harm them uh, and, and may, in fact, uh, end their lives in, in certain films. And in real life, uh, sadly, there are occasions where we have uh, women who've been impacted by this uh, and have, you know, taken, taken the, their children's, their own life and their children's lives as a result of that, because they believe that they were, uh, and again, it's always because they believe this is the thing they need to do, because in their reality, um, that is what they need to do as a mother. It's not reality, it's, it's again, a distortion, but that's, that's their belief. So I, I'm clarifying here because that is not a feature of postpartum depression. It's not a feature of postpartum anxiety. Um, in those cases, and in, and in postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder, I haven't, by, by the way, I haven't really drilled down into, there's probably uh, four or five others we could talk about, but those are the most common ones. In each one of those cases, we do not see psychosis. So we don't see breaks with reality. Now, 
there are uh, occasions where we have intrusive thoughts. And it can feel like something that is uh, foreign coming into your mind that you don't want there. It can feel like uh, there are thoughts being put into your mind, images um, that are scary, but they're only that. They're only images. They're not uh, compulsions. Your beliefs about the world don't, don't change. And so I'm, I'm wanting to be clear about that because there, there's a very, very big difference. Um, intrusive thought is not exclusive to any of these things. Uh, folks, I can have it tomorrow, right? This is a symptom um, actually of a lot of different disorders that uh, a lot of folks have, whether they're, they're men, women, uh, transgender, uh, non-binary, it doesn't matter. Um, and what an intrusive thought is, is really an image that pops in your mind uh, that is something that you did not put there. Uh, that is why it's called intrusive, right? We didn't ask for this thought. And around the perineal period, there's, there are particularly scary images because they, they can imply harm to your, you, you or a child. So, uh, for example, a pregnant woman may have an image of falling down the stairs. That's pretty scary. Um, but again, the difference here is she does not believe she needs to fall down the stairs. Um, it may be that she's uh, six months postpartum and has an image of uh, a baby drowning, or even maybe she's drowning the baby in her mind, right? But again, to be very clear, these images pop in there. They're not active thoughts. We don't want to do these things. Uh, and they're scary. They're very scary because again, how did this happen? Why is this in my brain? Uh, it's very distressing thoughts to have. But I wanna reassure all the people, um, and I, and I say people intentionally, men, women, uh, anyone in this perinatal period, any parent in this period of time uh, can have these thoughts. And I want to clarify that these are not active thoughts of intent. They don't imply intent ever. So it's not psychosis in the sense that that is the big difference there. In, in psychotic thought, you believe in your reality, these things need to happen. Uh, and, and in, in a way, it's because you believe that's that's what you need to do because, again, um, your child is possessed by a demon or whatever it is, those beliefs are not present when we're talking about intrusive thought. So um, that's just a very important clarification I wanted to make because I think, again, very often in TV and movies, uh, and even on the news, we see this as something that people get wrong. And I want to be sure that people know it's very common. A lot of people have this issue of intrusive thought, and it is not indicative of psychosis. So mm -hmm. what does a mother do? Um, maybe she's not having that psychosis. And so maybe she feels like, well, I'm not, I don't have that psychosis piece to this. So do I need help? Um, how would I know what the difference is between if I'm not in this psychosis period, how do I, or do I need help? And how would I determine that? What changes to make me feel like Okay, I have baby blues. It's very common. I, I know it's going to happen. It's tough, but I know it's something that I, I'm going to come through more than likely at the end of two weeks is what we see the onset pretty close to the end of, or excuse me, the beginning of, um, I've just had this baby. And at the end, we're talking about two weeks. That's baby blues. So how do I know when I'm looking at postpartum depression? Well, basically, 
turn the dial up another 30 to 40% in terms of severity and extend that time frame past the two-week mark. So if we have those feelings, we have that, that, over, that sense of being overwhelmed um, to the point where we're not crying for five minutes, we're crying for hours. We're not feeling overwhelmed uh, for a day or two or a week. We're feeling overwhelmed for, you know, on a daily basis, on, on a three to four day of, of the week basis. Uh, most of the day, we're feeling these mood swings happen, you know, rather than it being an hour or so uh, throughout the day. This is like over and over. Uh, we can't get out of bed uh, for days at a time. So increases basically all these symptoms to the severity of how bad they are and how debilitating they are. And it also, we're looking at the extent of uh, the duration. So again, rather than two weeks, we're talking about months, if not, you know, some, some people can experience this for a full year. It really comes down to support uh, is, is kind of the name of the game. How much support do you have socially? How much do you have emotionally? Uh, your financial support? Um, the, the higher those levels are, um, the better you're going to be able to predict when this is going to come to a close. Uh, and, you know, to clarify, you can have all the support in the world and still experience all these things uh, and need treatment. So it doesn't mean you're not going to need uh, treatment. If you have support, it just reduces the likelihood that it's necessary. Um, you know, postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety, uh, postpartum obsessive compulsive disorder, postpartum PTSD, all of these things um, that are under that umbrella do not discriminate based on, um, you know, when you look at the numbers, no one escapes this. This is not a rich, poor thing. This is not a middle-class thing. This is not a white, black, uh, native, Hispanic, non-Hispanic, Asian, non-Asian. Every demographic goes through this. Um, we do have disparities, of course, but um, pretty much this cuts through the entire population. Nobody is immune from uh, from having a, a shot at one of these disorders. If I am a mom and I'm recognizing, okay, I, I do need help. I am to the point where I have lots of tears all the time. I'm not loving my baby like I think I'm supposed to. Where do I go for help? What, what, are, some of, what are some of my options? Um, I mean, obviously my spouse might or my support or, or the partner in, in my life or family may recognize something, but what am, what is, where should I go? What should I do? You always want to start as close as you can to the source uh, of that support and kind of go up the ladder. And what I mean by that is, as you just said, the, the, the spouse, if you have one, your partner, if you have one, will be the first person you want to reach out to, primarily because they're the one that is going to uh, be able to recognize what those symptoms have been. And also they know what resources you already have. But beyond that point, and by the way, um, having a partner who is experiencing these symptoms and or diagnosed with one of these uh, maternal mood disorders um, raises the likelihood that that partner themselves will also be uh, at risk. So, you know, it's, it's a, really tough and, and tricky thing that the 
person that we often rely on to help us the most in these instances, unfortunately, can also be um, at risk for these things as well. So that's something else to think about is, you know, are we in a position where, you know, our partner more than likely is is experiencing some percentage of the same environment that, that, that we are whenever we have this baby, you know, that partner does not have the physical symptoms in terms of, you know, that their hormones will be shifting, whether they're, they're a man or a woman, by the way, that, that still changes, but not to that extent, same extent, uh, understandably so, but their environment is very much the same. Um, the resources may be similar. Um, and so that's something else to think about. So locally, uh, right now, really our best bet is going to be looking toward what national resources we have, and that is PSI, Postpartum Support International. And there, there have been, in the past, uh, local Oklahoma chapters of PSI. Uh, at the moment, it's an inactive chapter. So normally, that I would say, you know, look to our local Oklahoma chapter, but right now, we're, we're sort of in a, a holding pattern while we look to get more leadership into that role. So what do they do? Well, they have a telephone number where they have a, uh, a chat line for uh, moms to talk to folks uh, when they need support 24-7. Uh, and that telephone number is 1-800-944-4773. And then you push one for uh, Spanish and two for English. In addition to that, that same number is a text number. So you can text that number if you don't feel like you are comfortable with talking to someone, um, you're maybe not able to, to talk on the phone because of the fact that you've got a new baby and your hands are tied up. And so you want to text instead, or maybe you're just more comfortable with texting. You can text that same number um, for English. And the text number for Spanish is different. That one is 1971-203-773. Now, in addition to the number, they also have uh, support groups. And they do a fantastic job. I, I am constantly surprised at how many and and new. By the way, I mean it's literally almost every month they're adding a support group for a lot of different um, mothers and and fathers. By the way, too. So uh, postpartum moms, postpartum dads, uh, moms who have either been in the military or have a spouse in the military. Um, moms who have had babies in the NICU, um, bereavement, uh, uh, families that have lost a baby. There's many, many different support groups. Uh, and in each of these cases, these are folks trained by PSI uh, to walk, walk you through that process and support. Uh, most of the time, it's at least two days a month, and if not more frequently, it just depends on the group how often they do this. So the whole list of groups they have is available if you go to www.postpartum.net. That's their website. And right now, they are really the kind of the gold standard for support. Now, there are things I would love to see happen here in Oklahoma that we could do that we don't have yet. Um, but as of right now, you know, if you bring a, a mom to me, a, a dad to me, because uh, again, this is actually, you know, 15% of moms nationally, probably 10% of dads, and say, James, they, they need some help, they need some support. The first thing I'm going to do is say, well, what, what do they have in their own uh, system, in their own uh, world 
who can they call to rely on uh, that can they can rely on for help and then i'm going to say you know beyond that the, the experts in this field the folks trained to talk through this are going to be at psi and that's where i'll send most people um, one of the things that we wanted to do in the state level is make sure you know i i co-lead the work group here that we have focused on this issue and we wanted to talk through well what can we do as a state agency on the state level to try to increase capacity for what resources there are available and so last year for the first time we had a well i shouldn't say for the first time for the first time in a long time i think they technically had one before but it's been a long time uh, for the first time in a, in a long time we had psi come and do a training um, i say come they did a virtual training because this was of course during covid so he wanted to make sure everybody was safe so they did a virtual training of providers uh, for and when i say providers i mean mental health providers therapists so that we could say um, we're going to increase the amount of folks we know are trained to help with these issues so before we did this uh, training we knew that we had probably a, a not no more than 10 it was it was a handful 10 at the most probably that i could tell you were were trained specifically uh, in the knowledge and treatment of these um, mental health concerns and now i can say it's it's over 30. and so we've we've tripled uh, tripled whatever that ratio is i'm a social worker not the best at math so i will say we've definitely increased the number of folks who have um, expertise in that field and we definitely need to do more but i'm happy with where we've gotten um, since i've started working on that and the progress we've made uh, we need to do more for sure especially in the rural areas but i think making sure that people are aware of what is out there is is very important to that point we actually partnered with one of our um one of the, the groups that we work with pretty often here in maternal and child health is the Oklahoma uh, Perinatal Quality Improvement Collaborative, OPQIC. And I gave them the list of folks that were trained and said, um, you guys have some really cool maps that um, illustrate like, where is an OB in my area? Where is treatment I can get for physical therapy? You know, whatever it is that uh, people in the perinatal period might need, they have some really cool maps that you can you know, type in, here's what I'm looking for, and they can show you here are the people available. So they added to that list of maps, um, the list of folks we had trained, and that's available on their website. So if you go to opqic.org, that will uh, bring you to their website, opqic.org um, forward slash map. But if you go to the map, they will, there's a whole list there of what, what are you looking for? Uh, they have breastfeeding support, they have a uh, car seat, uh, installation help, um, maternal and infant crisis services. They have a lot of resources there on, on their maps. So um, they're a great partner for us. And so they actually have a list of some of those therapists, some of those uh, clinical social workers who've been trained in under the PSI um, mm -hmm. training, I guess. And so those are the, those are people who specialize in maternal mood disorder type of. Yeah. And I love sending folks there because even though that number is is not as big as i'd like it to be it is uh, a group of folks who i can say for sure you know these people have been trained they you know when i send you to this therapist um i can say with with confidence that they know uh, about perinatal mood anxiety disorders and they know about the treatment 
methodologies that work the best. Uh, that is not to say, you know, I, one thing I always want to clarify is, you know, if someone comes to me and they pull that map up and they look where they live and find a blank spot where we don't have a provider, does that mean that my local mental health provider hasn't been trained yet? Should I just not see anybody? No, absolutely not. Um, I always say almost any treatment from a, a professional, let me be clear about that, you know, a licensed therapist is going to be beneficial. Um, most of the folks in Oklahoma who are licensed, whether that be an LPC, LMFT, uh, licensed clinical social worker, that's LCS, uh, LCSW, which is what I am, those folks are all, not all, but most of them, I would say, are going to be trained in, in CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And that is very often seen as um, the modality of choice for many, many disorders. Um, so even if they have not specifically been trained uh, in perinatal mental health, that doesn't mean we shouldn't try to seek treatment at all. Um, I think those folks are still beneficial. Um, but I do think that there is a benefit to saying, you know, this person specifically is aware of um, what those symptoms look like and how best that we want to treat them. So it doesn't mean don't seek treatment if you don't see a name on your on your map that's in your area, but it means that those are the folks we know we have more confidence in being able to say they're going to be able to get you the help you need. Inpatient treatment centers, maybe identify or walk through what an inpatient uh, treatment facility would the perspective, I guess, of a mom who might say, okay, I need, I, I need more than just the therapy piece? Treatment in general. Okay, let's just talk about mental health treatment. We always look at what is the, the least um, intensive level and go up from there. So when, when I have any mental health concern, uh, and of course that applies to uh, PMADS as well, I'm going to think through what is the lowest level intervention. So getting um, enough uh, exercise, getting enough physical activity, uh, drinking enough water, staying hydrated, uh, adequate nutrition, um, having as much as I can a routine so I'm, my expectations are clear on what, what is my day going to look like. That's the very basic level of what we can do individually uh, for our own mental health. And then going upstream a little bit, uh, of course, we have uh, individual uh, treatment that is going to be a therapist. Uh, potentially medication-assisted, whether we need uh, to look at uh, a depression medication, uh, a Zoloft, or uh, whatever it might be. Um, you know, when we talk about the next level of intervention, individual therapy, um, um, support groups uh, would also fall into there. And group therapy also can be really helpful for uh, postpartum depression, anxiety, and these other mood disorders. But when we've done that, and we see that the level is such that, you know, this is really intense. I'm, I'm not getting the treatment I need. This is not enough. I need a higher level of treatment. Well, when we go on from that, um, there is an interim step. Uh, it's called day treatment. And it's called that because often these uh, folks will go into a facility that's, you know, eight to five. And they're there most of the day doing uh, individual therapy, group therapy, uh, other activities to help with their mental health, but it's not 24-7. They do go home at the end of the day. So that's the next level. Now, if I'm there and I still need more treatment, and, and that's something that does happen, uh, the highest level of care is inpatient care. In that case, we have folks who, uh, you know, unless I'm 
uh, in a situation where I monitor it 24-7, I don't know that I can be safe. Um, really, I would say the biggest reason why this is necessary is often uh, suicidality. If, if there is a concern that I'm at a risk for harming myself, uh, whether I'm going to kill myself or not, frankly, self-harm is um, probably the biggest driver of why folks might be in a situation where they need to be uh, safe and that safety can only be provided in an inpatient setting. That's what that's for. So uh, that is a hospital uh, that has got a unit specialized for folks uh, with perinatal mental health. Now, as you said, we don't have that in Oklahoma. We, have, um, we do have inpatient mental health facilities, but they're not specifically for uh, these diagnoses. Why does that matter? Well, I think for two reasons, primarily because the knowledge of what the specific symptoms and treatment options look like uh, is something that is really necessary um, at any treatment level. That's number one. Number two, um, when we talk about paranormal mental health, this applies to every aspect of, of moms who are in the postpartum period, especially. Um, it's not, you know, mothers are not mothers in isolation. We have a child to think about. And so the other reason I think it's important to have that as a resource is that when we have a true uh, inpatient mental health facility that is focused on that treatment, often um, whether or not the child is necessarily with the mom 24 seven, they can at a minimum have access to their child for bonding, uh, for breastfeeding, if that's something that they're doing. And it's hugely important. Uh, both for the development of the child and for the mom's mental health to have access to her baby uh, and not feel like she's cut off from that access. Now, obviously, if we're actively um, in a situation where we want to do self-harm or we may be uh, in a situation where uh, we have suicidality that is uh, at a high risk, maybe you would not have uh, the child at that facility in that moment. But as soon as it's safe, um, these facilities work to make sure that we have uh, the, the mom-child diet as a priority. So again, there, there's bonding that's very important in those early days. Uh, and there's also, of course, the, the fact that we, we often have uh, breastfeeding, which by the way, for, for some moms, you know, that's one thing I didn't really touch on and I should, probably should. Um, breastfeeding is one of those things that when it comes to mental health can be kind of a double-edged sword. Um, for some moms, it's a, it's a protective factor, and they actually really benefit from uh, the oxytocin release that comes with breastfeeding. Uh, the bonding that takes place can decrease the levels of cortisol, the stress hormone that we have uh, when we're depressed or anxious. Uh, for some women, that can be a huge benefit, uh, and breastfeeding is really helpful. However, for other women, um, if especially you are struggling to breastfeed and, and maybe you would like to, but physically your body is not responding in the way you'd like it to, um, the latch isn't there, whatever the issue might be, if it's a struggle, uh, whether you know there's a there's a issue there or whether maybe you you wanted to, but you just can't make it work. And it's so stressful because it can be. Breastfeeding is huge work uh, emotionally and physically for, for women. Um, for some women, it can actually be a harm rather than a help. It can be a, an additional thing to pile on that mental load. And so I should, I really want to clarify that, you know, for some moms, 
it can be great. And if you if you feel like breastfeeding is helpful to you, please do it. Please, uh, that's one of those things that can be protected. On the other hand, I want to make very clear that if you feel like you cannot breastfeed or you've tried, it hasn't worked out, do not let that be one more thing you put on your back and you take on as a mother of that sense of, oh, well, I didn't do this. I'm a failure because I couldn't check this box. No, you're a good mom who did not uh, have success in this one area that has nothing to do with you, right? Um, we do our best and sometimes those are things that we just have to let go. Um, I say this over and over because it's true. The number one thing that a, a child needs is not to check all those boxes on the checklist, our, our mental checklist of this is how I'm a good parent. They don't care about any of that. They want a healthy parent. They want a healthy dad and a healthy mom or healthy, whatever that combination is, two dads, two moms. They want to know that their parents are there for them and they're well. So how they get there, as long as they are, are, are being safe, as long as they're being healthy, um, if that doesn't include breastfeeding, fine. If that doesn't include uh, uh, natural birth, fine. Whatever needs to happen for that mom or dad to be healthy mentally and physically, that's what that child needs. Thank you for listening to this episode of We Saved You a Seat. Oklahoma Family Network promotes family-centered care and provides tools so families can make informed decisions, advocate for improved services, build connections among families, and serve as a trusted resource in health care of children and young adults. If you would like to become a supporting family or get in touch with another family, please contact Oklahoma Family Network at oklahomafamilynetwork.org or by calling 405-271-5072.